You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. I've been a Christian now for about 35 years, and a counselor for a little more than half of those years. And after moving in Christian circles for that long and talking to hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of Christians, I've come to one major conclusion. There's an ache in the souls of most people that simply will not go away. A deep, disturbing sense of emptiness and pain that we think should go away as we grow in the Christian life, but it just doesn't. We can ignore it. We can pretend it isn't there. We can work desperately to relieve it. We can even get out of touch with it to some significant degree. But but somehow that ache is still there if we take the time to think about it. Talked to a man recently who said to me, what do I do with a wife who, who simply will not respond to my efforts to be warm and sensitive? Everybody else likes how warm and sensitive I am, but not her. Her cold response to me makes me feel, and these were his words, like an unwanted failure. There's the ache. What do we do about that? Most obvious thought, I suppose, is this. If she changed, things would be okay. The ache would go away. The ache that I sometimes feel in my soul would go away if the things that are causing the ache would somehow change. I turn to my church for help. I try to find answers in Christianity. I listen to preachers and read Christian writers. And more often than not, the thing that I hear is one central message. I could get my life straightened out. I could feel better. I could be what I want to be if I would just try harder, believe more, learn more truth, read the Bible more, stop complaining. And the implication in all of that, I think, is this. If I did my best and tried harder to be all that a Christian could be, should be, then I could have a pain-free life of no sorrow and no tears. My circumstances would somehow change, and I'd be all right. Trying harder really is the key. Most of us know that that doesn't work. We wish it could be that simple, but we know that it simply doesn't work that way. We know that somehow, somewhere, something is deep down within us wrong, twisted, bent. We're just not as calm and loving and together as we want others to think. We know something's wrong with our relationships. We're just not as happy as we should be in all of our relationships, even our best ones. And what most of us know to do is to try harder, hoping that things will somehow change in our world so that our insides will change. But they don't. We either get more frustrated or more out of touch with our insides so we can survive. Now, give that process enough time, that process of getting more out of touch with our insides, and we're going to become shallow people. Maybe pleasant, but in fact, we're going to become Pharisees who do right things but love nobody with power. There'll be no depth, no passion, no sense of vitality, just a robot-like Christian who deeply relates to no one. We're going to dry up. We're going to shrivel up. There'll be no sense of movement in our lives, no sense of aliveness. Folks, that doesn't have to be the way it is. We can do better. If Christianity really is true, and I deeply believe it is, then it can speak to the problems inside of us that we hide from others. It can do more than rearrange us in the outside to keep us somehow feeling happy and really out of touch with the deep realities of our soul. It can change us in the inside, so that we live in front of others as an expression of who we are, not a disguise to hide who we really are from other people. You and I were built for a perfect relationship with God. And until we're perfect, we're never going to fully enjoy Him. We'll still ache for more. Now we can grow in our taste of Him, and we can learn to deeply enjoy Him now and to anticipate with eagerness all that's going to be ours in heaven. There can be joy now. But all there is for now is a taste of all of that. The banquet comes later. One of the things that impresses me most about the Bible, I think, is this. It isn't romantic. It isn't a romantic novel. It doesn't paint pretty pictures when the truth is ugly. It's a realistic book that comes to grips with how things really are in a fallen world. It enables women, for example, to honestly face the fact that they've not felt touched as, as deeply and as warmly as they really wish they were. Most women really feel missed at some level, some for severe reasons because of sexual abuse. Others have had no experience of that nature, but they still feel there's something, some part of their souls that has not been touched the way they just wish it would be touched. It's possible to face all of that as a Christian and to emerge as, as whole women, glad to be alive, enjoying what it means to be a woman. It's possible for men as well to learn what it means to be strong as a man, a Christian approach to life, makes it possible for men to face up to where they feel inadequate, 
where they feel out of it, deficient, where they feel weak and just unable to do what they really ought to do. They feel incompetent in their work, inadequate with their kids. They don't know how to relate to their wives. It's possible to face all of that, for men to face every bit of it, to honestly deal with it, to pretend about nothing, and to come out enjoying what it means to be alive as a man. That's possible. I know it's rare, but it's possible. It really is possible to admit how angry we feel sometimes. I mean, there are times I just feel a rage in my soul. It's possible to admit that, to face that, to think about it, to admit how pressured most of us feel most of the time, how unsatisfied in our jobs, how unfulfilled, how disappointed, unhappy we sometimes are, and still, in the middle of facing all of that mess, to grow into strong, intact, loving men and women. Too often, I fear, our churches just don't let people struggle. We feel a pressure to measure up, or else, if we don't measure up, we feel criticized, subspiritual, we just don't fit in. As a result, too many times, we pretend that things are better than they are. Christian leaders, and there are some happy exceptions to this, uh, rarely let us know that they struggle. And we get the message, don't struggle. If you're mature, if you're a solid Christian, if you're in the Word, you're just not going to struggle. And that leaves us pretending. But a Christian, more than anyone else, has no reason to pretend. As a matter of fact, he has every reason to not pretend. Something can be done to change us in the middle of the way things really are. I want to think with you about what it means to really change, to change on the inside, to face life as it really is, and to come out changed. The change on the inside in a way that reflects itself on the outside, or to put it in one simple phrase, to change from the inside out. I have four points I want to make. Let me tell you what they are, and then discuss each one in some detail. Point number one, we must deal with what's happening inside of our lives where nobody else can see if we're going to deeply know God. Real change requires an inside look. That's the first point. The second point, because you and I were built to enjoy what is not fully available until heaven, there's always going to be an ache in our souls till we get there. The ache in our souls is not evidence of immaturity. It's evidence of realism. It's okay to hurt. That's the second point. Point three, nobody wants to hurt. And because we don't want to hurt, we're naturally going to commit ourselves to avoiding as much pain as possible. And I want to suggest that our problem with sin shows itself most clearly in the fact that in our relationships, we play it safe, we, we commit ourselves to self-protection, staying away from the pain that's potential in all of our relationships. And the last point, point four, if we're to be deeply changed, we must face the pain in our souls and the sin in our relationships. Only then is it possible for us to meaningfully trust and enjoy the Lord and deeply repent of our sin. Now let's look at each of these points. Point number one. Real change requires an inside look. I'm convinced that, that most of us as Christians, most people in this world, make it through life as well as they do by denying what's really happening inside. Too often, we're encouraged to do precisely that. If you want to grow, then do what you should. Read the Bible, don't miss church, conform to whatever other standards your local community holds up as a measure of holiness. And don't get mixed up, for goodness sakes, don't get mixed up with all that psychological business of deep problems and painful emotions and hard memories. Just get on with doing what Christians should do. Don't worry about all that psychological stuff. Rather, try harder. Be biblical. Do whatever God says to do. Work hard at it. And whatever might be wrong on the inside will straighten itself out over time. Now, the effect of that teaching has been to produce a generation of proud, defensive Christians who look good on the outside, but who relate deeply to no one. But even these people are held up too often as models of spiritual maturity. Now, either we have that kind of person too often in our churches, or we have the group of honest, struggling people who feel guilty and pressured and sometimes disillusioned with the church. The advice to stay away from an inside look is bad advice. As a matter of fact, that advice is bad primarily because it flies directly in the face of our Lord's teaching. Our Lord was talking one time to the externalists of his day, those people who specialized in looking good but who never examined their hearts, never looked at their motivations, the Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, after a series of stinging indictments against them for their shallow, proud approach to religion, our Lord laid down a clear principle about how to live when he said this, Don't clean just the outside of the cup and dish. First clean the inside, and then the outside will be clean also. 
That's pretty clear. That's pretty direct. If we're going to do that, if we're going to clean the inside of the cup and dish, and if that's what our Lord requires us to do, then we're going to have to understand what is going on inside. That requires an inside look. In the same chapter, a few verses later, our Lord compared the Pharisees to the whitewashed stones that covered graves. On the outside, they look clean. Inside, they're full of rottenness and dead men's bones. Folks, we, we really must learn what it means to roll away the whitewashed stones, to pull back the rug and look beneath it, to see what is really going on inside of us, so we can see just what we're to do with who we really are. We simply must take an inside look. We must be clear about what's involved in an inside look. I don't want you to hear me suggesting that everybody needs to run to your local counselor and sign up for 20 sessions or 30 sessions, and nor do I want to be someone who's advocating a morbid introspection that keeps us gloomily preoccupied with ourselves and essentially uncaring about other people's problems because we're so wrapped up in our own. That's not Christianity, and that's not what an inside look means. That's a perversion of an inside look. What I have in mind is a decision to pretend about nothing, a willingness to honestly look at whatever is true about our lives, both the pain that we feel living in a fallen world and the sinful ways we respond to that pain, primarily the sinful ways we relate to others. Now, this is tricky business. It really isn't easy. The inside look thing really can be a, a hard thing to get involved with. When we start looking deep inside of our hearts, when we start looking at the motivation behind the things that we do, we're going to get confused. There's a verse in the book of Proverbs, 20 and verse 5, that says this, The purposes of a man's heart are like deep waters. And what that proverb means, I think, is fairly clear. It's hard to see the bottom of the lake when the water is deep. And just so, it's hard to see our real purposes as we live our lives. Are we really kissing our wives just to keep them appreciating us, or perhaps to blunt their anger? I can recall a fellow telling me of coming home an hour and a half late from work without calling his wife. And he was driving up the driveway and was hoping, he was aware of what he wanted, he was hoping that his wife would greet him warmly and say, gee, honey, I know you're late, but that's okay, it's so good to have you home, I'm thrilled to see you. And um, past experience did not support his optimism. And he, he, he knew that he wanted that, but he wasn't expecting to get it. As soon as he walked in the door and he saw his wife's face, he knew that his pessimism was confirmed. He told me that he rushed over to his scowling wife, and before she had a chance to speak, he kissed her passionately and firmly on the lips. Now, why? Because he loved her? Or because he didn't want to hear her complaints? Now, it's hard sometimes to know what's going on inside. It's hard to recognize because we really don't want to know. When you start looking inside, you start seeing some ugly things that you wish weren't there. You start feeling some painful things that you wish weren't there. Who wants to know that he's both hurting and sinful? It's much more pleasant to think we're together and decent. But the proverb doesn't allow us to move in that direction. The end of that verse that I just quoted finishes like this. A man of understanding draws them out. It may be hard to see our motivation, but a person who's wise is someone who's going to spend time looking inside to see what's really there. If you and I want to change on the inside, we've got to be willing to face whatever's there. We must be open to an inside look. Now, that does not mean that we're to spend all of our time studying our motives. Christians should be doing good things. Read the Word, attend church, witness to neighbors, be sociable, be friendly. That's important. But the Christian who is on the pathway to real growth, to inside-out growth, is someone who's going to do what is so very, very rare among people today. And that's maintain an openness to looking at his life more deeply, to be very honest about how he relates to people and what's really happening inside. When feedback from family or friends tells them he's not loving well, the Christian who's growing will do more, not less, do more than try hard to do better. He'll ask God and others for help in understanding what's wrong, what's happening in my soul, why am I angry, what's happening deep inside that's interfering with my love. Or to put it simply, whenever there's evidence that we're relating to others poorly, it's time for an inside look. And we've got to be clear on this. The measure of maturity is not how much Bible we know, how well we can defend the faith, those are important things, or how much we do for the Lord, that's important too. But the real measure of maturity, which the Bible holds out, is the quality of relationship we offer. When we see that we're not loving well, it's time for an inside look. Let me tell you a favorite story of mine that illustrates what I want to say. Some time ago, my wife and I went out for pizza. Now, we like pizza. We've gone out for pizza lots of times. We have a favorite pizza restaurant that's called the Pizza Board. And we've been there, oh, I don't know, 20, 30, maybe 40 times. Well, we got in the car, picked up some friends of ours for a double date, 
and drove to the pizza board. Here's what happened. I was driving down 2nd Avenue, which is a four-lane highway each way, and I was approaching Glades Avenue, where I am to turn left in order to get to pizza board. Now, I know to turn left there. I've been to this intersection many, many times. I know where pizza board is. I've been there many, many times. And as I approached the intersection, I turned my car into the furthermost left lane, and I stopped at the red light, sitting there. I turned on the left turn signal. Now, had you been in the car, had you been there watching what I was doing, do you suppose you might have figured out what my intentions were? The light changed from red to green, and before I had a chance to respond, my wife turned to me and said, Turn left here, Larry. And inside, when she said those words, I felt incredibly annoyed. Internally, I went into a rage. As a matter of fact, everything inside of me wanted to turn right, just to get even with her. But my desire for pizza outweighed my desire for revenge, so I went ahead and turned left. I turned down the road and was going left and looking at my wife, feeling annoyed, but I don't want to tell her how mad I was. I was counseling with a couple in the back seat. didn't seem right to share my rage at that moment. So I was going down the road, and I saw the pizza board sign. There was this huge sign that said pizza board. It was a huge sign, neon lights. I could see it. And as I slowed down once again, put on my left-hand turn signal, my wife said, here it is. Now, what am I to do with that? You've all been there. You all know what it's like. When someone says something, it's a little thing, it isn't a big deal, but inside you just get so mad, and I was furious. Now, I didn't show it. I'm a pretty spiritual guy, so I didn't show how mad I was, but inside I was just boiling. At that point, the passage in Ephesians 5, which says that you ought to love your wife as Christ of the church, that was not welcome news to me. I simply wasn't interested in being nice to my wife at that point. Now, what do you do? What do you do when you know that the right thing to do is something you have no interest in doing? Do you force yourself? You all know how that works. Your relationship becomes stiff. Your affection mechanical. There's no sense of intimacy. Do you just try harder? Is that all you do? Now, I know that it's important to try hard to do the right things, and I believe we should do that. I don't want to knock this notion of effort to the point where there's no room for hard, strenuous effort in the Christian life. There is. And maybe I, I, I should discuss the problem with her. Maybe I should just overlook it as a minor thing and admit that I'm just far too sensitive. I should try hard to do the right things. But if I'm to learn what it means to move toward my wife with real intimacy, I'm going to have to deal with internal matters more than just struggling hard to do the right thing externally. And that's the purpose of an inside look. I need to uncover that dirt that our Lord spoke about. I need to uncover the dirt on the inside of the cup and dish so I know what needs to be cleaned. Real change, deep change from the inside out, requires an inside look. In order to mature, you and I simply must be willing to face whatever is going on deep within our deceitful hearts. We must swim against a stream and let our Christianity be far more than outward conformity. We must take a look inside. Now, I'm aware that doing that can be kind of scary business. Probably the most common sentence I've heard from counselees over the years of my counseling career has been, I'm, I'm just terrified to start talking with you. What are we going to find once we pry open the lid and look inside? I've had so many counselees tell me that, that they're simply scared to death to face what's there because they might not be able to handle whatever they find. But that's just the point. Now follow this point carefully. As long as we allow ourselves to face only those things that we're pretty sure we can handle, those things above the surface, we'll never learn real dependence on God. An inside look can be overwhelming. It really can. It has been for me many, many times in my life. But it can lead to new levels of dependence on God that result in new levels of joy, new levels of love, new levels of peace. All that's available. If we're going to change, we simply must take an inside look. Point two follows naturally from point one. And point two, as you recall, is this. It's okay to hurt. Pain is inevitable in this life. Once you and I commit ourselves to living honestly... The first thing that, that most people have to face is how lonely or sad or empty we really are. Nothing satisfies. Not even the best relationship in the world. That's the first thing we're going to see when we pull off the surface of our life and look beneath the surface. The sad truth is, in a fallen world, something's wrong with everything. Now, that sounds pretty gloomy. There's nobody that wants to face that. I'd rather focus on pleasant things and say, hey, it's a nice day outside, my car's working fine, my wife's pretty healthy, my kids are doing okay. And I want to focus on all that and say, hey, life is working great. There's no problems. Things are super. But somehow, if you have any honesty at all, 
as you look at your lives and look at your own souls, you know and I know that somewhere things just aren't right. There are pockets down deep in our souls that are scared, empty, damaged. I think of one friend who told me he'd been saved for 10 years, and he said to me that uh, the Christian life just isn't working. I said, what do you mean? He said, down deep in my soul, I'm still empty. Things are not happening the way I thought they were supposed to happen. I'm really miserable down deep inside, even though on the outside things are super. When you begin facing your background, you begin to realize that your parents, no matter how good they were, they, they simply weren't there the way we needed them to be at every moment. Maybe wonderful parents, and we like to recall the good. Nothing's wrong with that. But there were times when your soul and my soul was crying out for a lot more than what I received. I think of one woman I worked with who went to boarding school all through junior and senior high schools. In the course of chatting with her, she told me that when she arrived home from school, from this boarding school, she would get off the bus, and her dad was always there to greet her. Faithful father who would never miss meeting his daughter at the bus stop during vacation times after boarding school, being away for three months, maybe four months at a time. But she said, and she fell apart and wept as she said this, I got off the school bus, and I saw my dad over by the station, and he saw me, and I wanted inside just to run up and say, Dad, it's good to see you. I've missed you so much. But Dad never ran up to her. He was too awkward for that. He loved her. He was a kind man. But he was scared to death to express how he felt. He rather came over to her rather slowly and uh, gave her a little affectionate but tight hug, said, How's your trip been, honey? Good to see you. Picked up her suitcase. They got in the car, and they went home. And she felt very, very badly missed. It hurt. What she wanted was legitimate, a warm expression of her father's love, and she never got it. Most of us work hard to stay out of touch with those kinds of personal aches and pains. All of us have them. But we focus on good memories. Some people even blot out bad memories to the point where when you ask them to recall, they can't. Those, those bad times that we can recall, one of the most natural tendencies is to make excuses for those who let us down. We don't want to blame them. We want to say, no, it, it wasn't their fault. They didn't really not love us. It was it was something else that was responsible for Dad's not coming over to the bus. It wasn't that his love was deficient. Dad loved me wonderfully. I don't want to hurt like that. And if all excuses fail, we simply order a pizza, turn on the TV. We don't want to hurt. It hurts to hurt. Who wants it? Now, there's nothing wrong with focusing on the positive things in our lives. I'm all for that, being grateful for the blessings that we have. And when you're feeling down, I'm all for going for a good jog if you're into exercising or to meet a friend for lunch. That's fine. My concern is this. When you and I make a lifestyle out of staying away from the real suffering of life, then we lose contact with the richest part of our soul that passionately wants what only heaven will bring. Rich parts of our soul are in pain. If we deny our pain, we become shallow people. People with no sense of vitality whatsoever. Paul spoke in Romans 8 about something he called groaning. He described the whole creation as groaning for the day when God will come back and get rid of all the weeds and famine, earthquake and disease. But then he went on to say that, that people groan too, particularly Christians who have a taste of how things could be and desperately want it to be that way. You and I groan for the day when we're not going to worry about our teenagers when they come in late. We groan for the day women will live in a world where they don't have to think back on the time that they were raped or the moments of sexual abuse. We want to live in a world where good friends will never stab you in the back, where every relationship is deeply satisfying. You never have that empty pit of, of pain in your stomach when a good relationship seems to be crumbling. You and I ache for a better day. For Paul, that ache was not only inevitable... It really served a good purpose. It created in him a passion for the coming of Christ. He said it this way. He said, We groan inwardly and wait expectantly. Those people who don't consciously hurt and ache and groan over the disappointments in their lives really have very little passion in their souls. They might be decent, moral, faithful Christians, but they lack that sense of aliveness that comes only when we admit that a deep part of us exists that has been badly hurt by an imperfect world. Now I want to suggest that the first step to real change in the Christian life is to face and embrace the disappointment in our souls, that thirst for something better that really has not been thoroughly quenched. Until we deeply feel how empty our souls remain in this world, we'll never turn to Christ with passion. 
will never pant after God as a thirsty deer pants after the water brooks. It's also true that when you and I face a disappointment in every relationship, we actually will be in a better position to stop requiring people to do what they cannot do, to stop demanding that they come through for us, and to then enjoy whatever good they do bring into our lives. The key to forgiving people, I think, is rather surprising. The key to forgiving people is to squarely face how badly they have wronged us. Now, let me develop that thought for a minute. Every child comes into the world thirsty, not just for mother's milk, but also for genuine love and involvement and meaningful impact. We're thirsty for what God designed us to have. We all want rich relationship, deep impact. We're built for it. It fits our souls somehow. But each one of us has been sorely disappointed. Because we turned to parents or other caregivers to get it, we found that no one comes through perfectly. Everyone's disappointed. Some because of obvious neglect or abuse, other because of love that's good, but still less than what our souls crave. Perhaps the most frightening thing to face about life is that what we want and desperately need is not available from others. To admit that you and I have not been loved as we want to be loved feels like death, feels like the end of hope. We've learned that fully trusting anyone is suicide. No one takes care of us perfectly. No one that we've ever met. Makes it pretty hard when we're told to trust the Lord. We'd rather keep matters in our own hands. Now, how do we do that? Rather than facing the awful reality that our worlds have loved us poorly, or at least imperfectly, we blame ourselves. We weren't pretty or handsome or smart or talented enough. It wasn't our parents' love that was imperfect, it was us. See how this functions. We come up with explanations for why we weren't loved that allow us to continue hoping that if we change enough or become good enough, we can get the love our souls desire. We then develop a, a strong sense of contempt for ourselves. We learn to really hate ourselves in a very non-constructive, terrible way. Not conviction for sin here, but we learn to have a strong sense of contempt for who we are that gives us something to work on, to improve. Maybe one day we can earn the love we need. It's a common observation that people who have been abused rarely see their abuser as wicked. They rather see themselves as contemptible. Now understand how this works. If I can blame me rather than them, then I can keep control over the hope of one day being loved. I've got to get better. I'll work at it. As long as people deny how badly they've been wronged and cover it over by working hard to improve from a base of self-contempt, the result is pressured, joyless, powerless lives. We simply have to face how badly you and I have been hurt. Only then are we going to be able to sort our way through the rubble of our lives to see what our sin problem really is. To hurt over disappointment frees us to pursue God from the deepest parts of our soul. And to hurt frees us to face people as they really are and to learn to forgive them for what they did that needs forgiveness. We're called upon to forgive others when they wrong us, not to understand them. If a bad deed can be explained, it deserves understanding. But if there's no explanation for how badly we've been treated, other than to say that the offender is sinful, then forgiveness is needed. You and I must face, we've been wronged, we've been sinned against, you and I hurt. In John chapter 7, our Lord came to a group of people who were celebrating their Jewish rituals, they were involved in their religion. And on the last day, at the high point of their feast, our Lord stood up in the middle of the crowd and he shouted. And he said, Is anybody thirsty? If anyone's thirsty, then come to me. I want you to notice what our Lord did not say was, If anyone's thirsty, repent. You're being self-centered. Folks, there's nothing wrong with our thirst. The thirst is not the problem. The thirst is that somehow we don't come to the Lord. But we're not going to understand the ways in which we don't come until first we recognize how thirsty we are. Can you imagine if next Sunday sitting in church, as you're there in the middle of the service, the choir singing, the preacher is about ready to get up and deliver his sermon, you've sung a few hymns of the faith, and right in the middle of that service, somebody stands up and shouts over the noise of the choir and says, Is anybody here sick and tired of your empty religion? Don't your souls long for more? Aren't you aching for what you don't have? If you are, then admit it. Admit how deeply, thirsty, unsatisfied, disappointed you really are, and you come to me. That's exactly what our Lord did. It's good to be aware of deep, unmet longings in our soul. Something's wrong with everything. That needs to be faced. It's really okay to hurt. To admit that we hurt 
opens us up. Not to a life of discouragement and pain, that's not Christianity, but it opens us up to deeper tastes of the Lord in the middle of a disappointing world. That brings joy. It's okay to hurt. On side one of this program, Dr. Larry Crabb showed how real change requires us to face the unquenched thirst in our souls. In the conclusion of his discussion, Dr. Crabb explains our human desires and sinful solutions more fully, and he points toward the biblical way of dealing with our thirst. Point number three. You and I handle the pain in our souls by, by trying to stay away from it. I don't want to hurt. And because I hurt more around people than I hurt around things, what I protect myself most from is people. My relationships are characterized by what I want to call self-protection. The third point can be summarized perhaps more clearly this way by saying that if we're going to grow as Christians and face our sin problem, then we're going to have to realize that our most serious struggle with sin are the sins that we commit in our relationships, the least obvious sins, the sinful ways in which you and I relate to each other. Let me talk about what I mean. One of the most tragic shifts in modern thinking has been to no longer define the real problem in the human personality as sin, but rather to define it as, lots of terms here, damaged psyche, poor self-esteem, psychological distress, all sorts of things that psychology has obscured the real issues with. The Bible's very clear. That when you and I are struggling and we have problems, somehow sin's the culprit. Somehow the real problem is sin. Our battle is with sin. Not just as a matter of getting saved, where you and I have to face the fact that we're sinful people and we have to come to Christ and trust Him as our Savior. Of course, that's the beginning of the Christian life. But the ongoing struggle to grow as a Christian is the struggle against sin. And I suppose that at some level, every Christian knows that. But to say that our problem is sin is a rather easy sentence that can become very glib. Because when you and I feel, for example, depressed, down, a cloud's over our soul, it's really hard to see exactly what does it mean to deal with our sin. What's my sin? What's the problem? To call myself lazy and deciding to just get on with things, it doesn't seem like it's going to work. Is my sin just laziness? To tell a homosexual that his whole problem is he goes out and does wrong things, and therefore the whole cure is don't go out and do wrong things, that's not getting to the inside of that person. That's not cleaning up the inside of the cup and dish. We must do more than hold people accountable to do all that they should do. I really fear that a lot of people have been hurt by what's been called biblical counseling or Christian counseling in some circles. There's been a fair number of biblical, or I think so-called biblical counselors, that have unwisely overreacted to this emphasis on, um, oh, we have problems with self-esteem and we have problems with psychological distress. And they've come up with the idea that, yes, sin really is the problem, but they treat it in a very, very shallow way. And they hunt around for any sin they can find and rebuke the person and assign Bible verses that address that sin and send them away. Folks, that's terrible counseling. It's thoroughly unbiblical. One of the classic mistakes in modern conservative Christianity is to understand sin as nothing more than visibly wrong deeds. Things like immorality or murder, drunkenness, lying, stealing. Now those things obviously are sin. They're wrong and Christians have no business involving themselves in those kind of activities. But to define sin in terms that limit it to those things that we can see is to miss the real point. In some circles, the definition of spiritual living is practice an extensive list of do's and avoid an even longer list of don'ts. The result is pride in those who manage to keep the rules and pressure in those who are honest enough to admit that they really can't do it all perfectly. There's a very interesting passage in Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 13 talks about a very strong indictment against the Jews of that day because they were people, we're told in that verse, who committed two evils, two sins. The first sin is they turned away from God, the spring of living water. And the second sin was they were digging for themselves broken cisterns, cisterns that could hold no water. Now, in that particular verse, you notice everybody's thirsty, and God never condemns people for being thirsty. The thirst isn't the problem. 
But in that verse, the prophet makes it very clear that when people take matters into their own hands and look for a shovel and go out digging for a well, when they say, I'm going to take care of my thirst, trusting God for my thirst is not what I'm going to do, I don't want to be vulnerable, to trust a suicide, that's when you start getting into problems. The real difficulty somehow is something deep inside, not just doing wrong things, committing murder, whatever, but a deep attitude of heart that says, I'm going to take responsibility to deal with my own thirst. In the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord made it very, very plain that sin was more than an outside problem. It was essentially an inside problem. And when you and I take an inside look, we're going to begin to feel not only our pain, that's the first thing we're going to feel, our pain, disappointment, groaning, but we're also going to begin to realize how severe our sin problem really is. As a matter of fact, I don't believe that anybody really comes to grips with his sin unless he takes an inside look. Far from being an exercise in psychological introspection, looking inside can be the opportunity the Spirit of God uses to convict us of our real sin problem, the dirt on the inside of the cup and dish. An inside look, and this is my third major point, can help us face not only our sins of behavior, the immorality and the murder and the stealing, but it can also help us face the sins of the heart, those wrong motives that govern us as we relate to others, those ways in which we dig up the ground looking for the water that our souls desire, saying, I'm in charge of my life. Now, give that some thought. We've already discussed that each of us has been damaged to at least some degree. That's an important thing for Christians to admit that somewhere down deep our souls have been damaged. All of us hurt in our souls because we've never received from anyone all that we really wanted. At very basic levels in our souls, we've been damaged, we hurt. Now, when you're in pain, what do you want? More than anything else, when I hurt, I want relief. And when you're in severe pain, you want relief more than you want anything else. Because the longings that have not been satisfied, our core, central, deep longings of our hearts, we all hurt badly. Therefore, we all put top priority on finding relief. Recall a man once came to my office for counseling, and I didn't know him at all. First session he came in, and I said, how can I help you? His opening sentence was this, I want to feel better quick. Well, I looked at him and said, um, you are totally after relief. What you want is to feel better right away. He said, well, yeah. And I said, well, I think the best I can offer you then would be suppose you were to get a case of your favorite alcoholic beverage, find several immoral women, and go to the Bahamas for a month. The man looked at me and said, um, are you Christian? And I said, well, why do you ask? He said, well, your advice doesn't sound very Christian or biblical to me. And I said, well, I think the real problem is not with my advice, but with your question. If you are requiring immediate relief, then I don't recommend Jesus. I think Satan has a better plan if what you want is to feel better quick. If you follow the Lord, he invites you to persecution, he invites you to suffering, he invites you to a deep groan in your soul because you know that what you want is not available fully until heaven. If you're after immediate relief, the best I can offer you is numb your pain through sin. And that's the ultimate choice, I think. Do I go after relief now that I can provide for myself, digging my own cisterns, my own wells, or do I trust Christ with my aching heart while I go about the business of loving others? Now think more about how all this works. Very, very important point that I'm afraid is not understood very well too often. If I had been attacked by a big black dog when I was a kid, then as an adult I, I may cross the street to keep my distance from the neighbor's big black dog, even if it's chained. Thirty years later I might still avoid a big black dog because of the memories of having been bitten so many years before. Now catch the principle in that simple illustration. Whatever I perceive has caused my pain... I'm committed to avoiding. I recently worked with a woman who came to see me because she was feeling lonely and to the point where she was wondering if, if she had the motivation to continue doing all the good things she was doing. As we spent some time together and discussed her background, she told me that she had been molested by a very trusted uncle. And she told me that as an adult, she really wanted to feel very close to people. And as she looked back in her childhood, the closest she ever felt to anybody was during that awful moment with her uncle. There was something that felt very good about it. Now, be, be very careful with that. It was awful. She hated it. It should never have happened. But she had no intimacy with anybody as a youngster. And at least this uncle moved toward her in terrible, terrible ways. But she said that far more than having some feeling of uh, intimacy because of this memory, 
She said that I, I felt and I still feel just so cheap. I feel so used by this man. I feel dirty and helpless and betrayed. And as we continued chatting, it became clear that because of the incredible pain that she still felt in her soul, for a variety of reasons, but essentially the molesting, her basic major priority was to get out of pain, stay out of pain, hoping somehow that she could still feel intimate somewhere. But because that desire to feel intimate, that legitimate thirst of her soul to be in relationship and to be cared for, seemed to cruelly taunt her with what she might never have. And because that desire to be loved and intimate was wrapped up with all those miserable feelings and the molesting, she learned to hate her desires. She learned to have incredible contempt for herself as somebody who was just too sentimental, somebody who just wanted too much to be around men. And so she just hated all that and stuck them way down deep somewhere and really committed her life to self-protection. And she began to see that. She began to see that she did what all of us do. She developed a style of relating, a style of relating to people that really has its major motivation keeping us out of pain, keeping us safe. In this lady's case, she became a very good person, Christian lady, very moral. She was involved in her church very actively in women's ministries. She had spent many summers in the mission field and short-term mission work. And everyone in her church knew her as a very godly, mature woman. She was admired by everybody, including the pastor who was so glad to have a woman who worked this hard in her church. What no one noticed, and what she had denied until just very recently, until the pain got so great, what no one noticed was that she had no close relationships with, with anybody. Not women, not men, certainly. That she kept her distance from men more than an appropriately moral distance. She kept so far away that nobody could hurt her. And she was lonely, really badly lonely. As we explored her life together, I asked her this question. I said, given all that we're talking about, given how, given how thirsty your soul is, if any man thirsts, come. What have you done in your thirst? Given how thirsty your soul is, is it possible that, um, that you're so afraid that your longings are going to be violated again, that you've committed yourself really to protecting yourself, and that much of what you do that you thought of as godly, is really energized by a strong commitment to keep yourself from ever again feeling that level of pain that you felt when you were molested? Consider a second example. A man came to see me. Actually, his wife told him to come, and he was not all that willing to, but he came. And it turned out that from feedback from his wife and also from him that he was a very serious-minded kind of a fellow. Uh, that's a polite way of saying he was rather flat, a little bit dull if he wanted to be unkind. He never told jokes, he was never spontaneous, never very affectionate with his wife. And as we chatted in his life, it was clear that um, he was never involved with his father. As he began to take an inside look and to look at his pain and to look at his background and look at his heart, he began to remember how, as a youngster, he was badly overweight. He was very unathletic, a combination that his football-playing father had a hard time warming up to. And he told me one time, and, oh, the tears is too strong, but uh, some moisture in his eyes began to emerge, when he said that as a youngster I had no friends. As a matter of fact, he said, my only friend, my best friend ever, was my cat. In that environment, an environment where he wasn't wanted, for him to express whatever sense of freedom in his soul was there, whatever fun was there, his affectionate side, his loose side, would have invited disaster. Maybe nobody wanted him that way. And so he learned to hide himself. He was basically saying to himself, I'm not going to be hurt like this anymore. I don't like it running up to my dad and saying, Dad, let's go for a walk together. And Dad says, why do I want to be with you? And he called him bad names having to do with being overweight. So this man learned to keep himself quiet, work hard all by himself, and he became a very unspontaneous, serious-minded person. Now think very carefully about this. Very important point. This man's pattern of stiff relating and impersonal involvement with his work did not develop because his dad failed him. I'm not suggesting we're blaming parents here. What I want to suggest very, very clearly is this pattern of self-protection, the girl's pattern of self-protection who was molested by her uncle, developed because these people committed themselves to avoiding pain. The problem is never what happens to us, no matter how severe. Those can be serious pain-producing events that can lead to severe hurt. But the problem in our soul is our determination to stay away from hurt, which leads to a pattern of sinful, self-protective relating.
Now, we're not going to see our style of relating as self-protective until we see what we're protecting ourselves from. Most of us relate very nicely, we're polite, we're friendly, we tell jokes, and it's very hard to see that what we're doing really can be self-protective until we embrace the pain that we're trying to avoid. Now, that's one reason why it's so important to face our pain, because only then are we going to be able to clearly see how we relate in ways that are designed to avoid that pain. Think how often marriages are filled with tension. Think how often married couples just have no sense of intimacy and joy. And I wonder if one of the real keys to putting a marriage together is for each couple to see not only how they hurt, but also how they're demanding that their spouse take care of their souls. You take care of me. I hurt. And maybe to see that their style of relating, their way of moving to their wife and giving her a hug, the wife's way of being very submissive and being very helpful. I wonder if a lot of what looks like very godly behavior is nothing more than a veiled demand to get the other person to take care of their souls, as well as a means of keeping distance. So if they don't treat them well, it's not going to hurt. Change from the inside out requires an inside look that uncovers not only the painful disappointment of living in a world doesn't satisfy, but also a look that uncovers the sinful ways in which you and I take matters into our own hands, the sinful ways in which we refuse to trust God with our hurting souls, and the sinful ways in which we relate to others, not in love, but behind walls of self-protection. We're not going to understand how we relate sinfully until we talk to other people and get feedback until we go to the scripture and say, function as the sword and uncover the real motives and intents of my heart, until we come to the Spirit of God and say, search me, see if there be some harmful, some wicked way in me, lead me to paths everlasting, until we are open to the Spirit of God, the people of God, the Word of God, to take a look at how we relate, asking, are we really loving, or are we somehow staying away from pain? We're not on the path to inside-out change until that's looked at. Now the big question. Once we uncover this unbearable pain and disappointment, once we see the relational sin that characterizes so many of the ways we relate, how's that going to help us change? Is that going to make us as miserable and defeat us and we're going to walk around as awfully unhappy people and call that spirituality? That's hardly what I have in mind. That's not changed from the inside out. Let me sketch my thoughts by turning to the fourth point. But before I do, make sure you're with me on the first three. Remember, the first point is that we must take an inside look. Real change requires that. When we take an inside look, we're going to see the thirst of our souls, and we're going to see the pain in our souls, but you know what we're going to find beneath all that? If we're Christian people, we're going to find that you and I have, have new hearts. We're going to find that there's real dignity to who we are as image bearers. We're a people that God has changed. We're a people that want to love. We're a people that can count for God, that can live with dignity and joy and meaning. We're a people that have contributions to make. There's uniqueness about us. And all of that needs to emerge, needs to come out. I wonder if the psalmist meant that when in Psalm 23 he said, The Lord restores my soul. He brings me back to the realization of how much he loves me and what I can do for him and who I am in Christ. You recall that Isaiah, after he faced terrible things about his life in Isaiah chapter 6, he said, Lord, here am I. What he's saying there is, here am I. I'm a person. I'm a person you love. I'm a person who can matter. I'm a person who cares. I'm a person who wants to be used. We can find who we are as redeemed image bearers if we take an inside look. That's the first point. And the second point is what we're going to find is this awful disappointment. And the third point, we're going to find some awful sin. But as we find all these things, the whole point is that we can be released to be vital, alive people, the people God designed us to be, the people God saved us to be. How does this work? Point four. What does real change require? The kind of change that doesn't leave us with pressure? The kind of change where we don't feel missed and still scared of what we're really like? The kind of change that allows us to emerge as vital, alive men and women who are glad to be alive, who give all that we are to God and to others and to sense the vitality of life, still in the middle of pain that's ongoing and inevitable until heaven, but still with joy. Now, how, how do we get to all that? Here, here's the good part now. The first part's been kind of tough. But where does the joy come in? How does all this work? How do we change in a way that allows us to not only do what God commands, but to enjoy God as we obey him? to sense a, a passion for life, a vitality of soul, a freedom to be all that we're meant to be. 
Most Christians are just trying harder. Some realize that they just don't want to try harder anymore. They're tired. They they want to quit. They're frustrated. They're pressured. The, the, the cure is not more effort. What I want to suggest is the route to change, deep change, is far more than just try harder. The real key to change is exposure of all that's inside, our longings, our sin, and then to come to grips with the realization that God has built us for better and we want that. If we're going to change from the inside out, we've got to do something about all that's beneath the surface of our lives. We must do more than just try hard and maintain a Christian appearance. But just how does all this work? Let me illustrate what I mean. A middle-aged woman consulted me about problems of self-confidence. She told me she was nervous around people, she couldn't relax, she couldn't be herself, and she was beginning to struggle with a desperate sense of loneliness. Now, she was a good lady, committed Christian. She was living a very moral life, single woman. She had had some form of Bible training in the hopes of working full-time in the church. And as I began to work with her, I began to think, well, what do I do with this lady? If I, if I stayed on the surface of her life... The best I could have done, I suppose, would be to remind her of God's promises, his faithfulness, that he'll be a husband to the single, and that uh, he's, he'll never leave her nor forsake her, and that she must simply take courage in that and repent of any any lack of faith in him and keep on going and just spend more time in the Scripture. If I'd have done that, in my mind, that would have been apparently good biblical counseling, but it would have missed the point and been really thoroughly unbiblical. Because I believe that an inside look is necessary, I began to probe around into her life. And she told me, really one of the saddest stories I think I've ever heard, she told me about the fact that her dad had suicided when she was eight years old. But her mother told her that her father had died from heart attack, natural causes. And for 20-some years, until in her late 20s, early 30s, she had believed that story. Then a cousin came to visit and inadvertently, not knowing the girl didn't know the truth, made known what actually had happened. And she found out that when she was eight years old, her mother had been discovered having an affair and had filed for divorce. Her dad, a very sensitive man, she recalled him well, a very kind man, was so upset and so distraught by the mother's inf infidelity and the impending divorce that one night he said to his daughter, Honey, I, I want you to go sleep with mother. I'm just not feeling well. And um, I don't want to get your mom sick, so you go sleep with her. That night, he died of an overdose. He had taken a massive dose of pills and committed suicide while sleeping in his bed. Now, be that girl, be that woman, and you hear that story. You're now 29, 30 years old, and the man that you've gone home to now for the past 20-some years, your stepdad, is the man that your mother was having an affair with led to your dad's suicide. What do you feel? Do you hurt do you feel anger? Do you want to go home and just yell? Do you want to scream? Do you never want to go home again? Just all sorts of things are going on in that poor lady's mind. What do you do? In quiet desperation, she turned to the scriptures, and she began memorizing large portions of various books, just trying to quiet the terrible ache, the burden, the sadness, the hurt, the rage in her soul, just trying to cover it up under an avalanche of Bible verses. She began to lose interest in dating at that point. She immersed herself in church work. And she became a person that people liked, but, but nobody ever felt close to. As she told me that story, and as she wept through the story, it took time, but she slowly began to admit how wrong her mother was. And to no longer blame herself for being such a bad girl that her parents' marriage had failed, a thought she had believed for years, the usual pattern it's my fault. The fact that Dad committed suicide because Mother was having an affair, somehow it was me. As she learned to replace self-contempt with legitimate hurt and anger over her mother's sinfulness, her mother's lack of love, she then began to see how her entire life since then till now had been committed to one central organizing purpose. I'm not going to hurt ever again. I'm never going to be let down. I'm never going to get close enough where I can be hurt. She had kept her distance from people to serve a God who commanded her to love one another. Now, as a result of this new awareness, several things happened. As she began to take this inside look and began to see that she was a thirsty, hurting woman who desperately wanted to be loved in a way she never had been, that she was a sinful woman who was committed not to trusting God and loving others, but to keeping her soul safe and out of pain, 
the first thing that happened as she saw all this was that she felt able for the first time to really forgive her mother. Now, why would that be? Well, you really cannot forgive somebody whose offense you refuse to face. As long as, as somehow we take the blame as a way of pretending that what the other person did wasn't really so bad, we're not going to come to grips with the meaning of forgiveness. If there's a reason for why somebody did what they did, and that reason is me, then I don't need to forgive that other person. I need to work on me. Self-contempt keeps you out of touch with how bad you've been treated. But that also keeps you away from being able to forgive. She learned to forgive her mother. Secondly, because of her inside look, she began to repent in meaningful ways of her self-protective style of relating. She began to realize that what she was really saying to herself was that her responsibility was to preserve her soul. Our Lord made it clear, anybody who tries to find their life loses it, and she was trying to find her life, and she was in the process of losing it. That's why she came to see me. She felt like her life was falling apart. And she began to see that her basic attitude towards God was not one of trust. It was one of fear in a very bad sense of that word. And she repented. She said, Lord, I don't want to stay away from you. I want to trust you with the deepest issues of my heart and my soul. And because her repentance was real, it showed itself in certain obvious ways. She got off several church committees, things which don't look like spiritual progress sometimes, but they were for her. And she began to spend time inviting folks over to her house, not for ministry, not to witness to them, to edify the disciple, just to enjoy people, just to converse. But that was hard. She wasn't used to simply relating as a woman to other people. She was used to relating behind a wall of self-protection that kept her safe. And as those walls came down, she was terrified. What kept her going was the realization of how awful her self-protective sin had been. That truth gripped her heart, and she found herself, as all Christians do when they're honest, really wanting to love. Three years later, she married. I want you to notice a very simple, basic truth. The essential route to change that I'm convinced so many Christians miss is that we must face whatever is true in our lives. When you and I deeply face our disappointment, we begin to realize that efforts to deal with our pain on our own are destined to fail. We must make a conscious decision to trust the Lord with the deep longings of our heart, knowing that our satisfaction will not be perfect till heaven. There will be more groaning. But secondly, when you and I see how subtle and pervasive our sin is, as we begin to realize how we protect ourselves from pain in a variety of ways and how we relate to other people, then we can deeply and meaningfully repent of subtle sin. When you and I start seeing how we use our sense of humor not to edify, not to encourage, not to enjoy people, not to share with somebody else the good sense of humor God has given us, but to get other people to applaud us and to stroke us and to like us, when we begin to realize that we drop the names of important people we've been with, and we begin to see that what we're doing is not loving. We're getting other people to respond to us. We're pulling from other people what we think is required for our lives. When we begin to see that, that we're not loving very well at all, and we're really damaging other people in the process, then something inside the Christian is legitimately repelled. You and I as Christians, we were built to love. We want to love. And as I see the ways in which I fail to love, God has built within me something which says, that's not who I am, that's not what I want to do. And then giving up our self-protection by moving toward meaningful, vulnerable, close relationships becomes something I want to do. It's more than just a duty. Christianity certainly is a duty. We're obligated. We're to do what our commander-in-chief says. But the Christian who's aware of how thirsty he is and how much God is committed to his thirst... The Christian who's aware of how he violates love in so many subtle ways is one who does his duty out of a deep sense of desire. He wants to love. He wants to trust. The key, I suggest, is to deeply face our hurt and our sin. And then, as we trust the Lord with our hurt, repent of our sin, we'll begin to realize how much we really want to be what God designed us to be. That's freedom. That's joy. That's change from the inside out. One warning before I finish. Looking inside is difficult business. If you make the decision to honestly look at your life, you're making a decision that will invite more struggle and pain into your life than perhaps any other decision you can make. The pain you face may overwhelm you, and the sin you see in yourself may crush you. 
Pursuing God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is not for the faint-hearted, but it is for those who long to know God in ways that really count, like the mother giving birth, first the suffering, then the joy. Until the day when we live forever in a world where nothing is wrong with anything, we can be of good cheer in this world if we face the way it really is, commit our ongoing ache to a Father who cares, and set about to trust Him by loving others. And that will lead to tastes of God that can only be described as inexpressible joy. The pain remains, the struggle remains, the groaning remains, but the joy surrounds it. May I suggest that you talk these things over with a close friend? Get feedback on how you come across. Nothing's harder than that. So many folks, particularly in Christian leadership, never ask for feedback and say, tell me, do I come across arrogantly? Am I the kind of person that lets you feel close to me? Do I listen well? Am I defensive? See how you keep people at a distance. Open your mind to the disappointments that you felt. Review the hard moments of your life when everything in you wished that someone had treated you better. Realize that, that you've been failed, and not because you deserved it, but because that person's love just wasn't enough, or in some cases, it wasn't there at all. Look to see how you live to protect yourself from feeling that pain ever again. Commit your pain to God as you repent of your self-protection. Move toward people in new ways with a gentle, vulnerable concern for their well-being. The dividends will be the beginning of love, joy, and peace in the middle of ongoing sorrow and struggle as you and I change from the inside out. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.